Examining Ethics with Andy Collison is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics. This episode of Examining Ethics is sponsored by Oxford University Press. There are questions about parenting that we don't usually ask ourselves. I find myself squarely in this camp. I have two children myself, and I don't feel the slightest bit of guilt about my decision to have kids. I suspect almost all of you listening at home with children think the same way. But philosophers are asking super important questions about the permissibility of procreation, that is the permissibility of having kids. Our decision to have a child has implications for the environment, the world, all other existing people, and even the child we'd be bringing into existence. It does seem worth thinking about the question, should I have a kid? Philosophers are also asking super interesting questions about who should have the right to parent at all and what role the government should play in all of this. It's time I force myself to think about these things, and I hope you'll join us. So with this episode, we want to ask questions about becoming a parent that we don't generally ask ourselves. Andy, what type of things did you consider before having kids? Not much at all. So I always liked the idea of eventually having kids. Um, A lot of my thought about having kids was just how much fun I thought it'd be. Um, I was looking forward to having the kind of relationship that I'd had with my parents. There were people who would say things like, I just don't see how I could bring a kid into this world because it's just, you know, there's so many bad things that happen. But I was never terribly moved by those kinds of considerations. I knew the world could sometimes be a really bad place, a harsh place. But I thought, on balance, it was still worth the risk. Life's still worth living. And so I was never moved by that. So really, I didn't give it much more thought than that. Uh, What about you, Christian? Well, when I found out that I was pregnant with my first son, it was a total surprise to me. So um, I clearly had put very little thought into it before I got pregnant. Um, But, you know, before that, I had sort of generally talked about it with my husband, and we had kind of generally agreed that we wanted to have kids Um, So I I have to admit, you know, after I read the book that we're discussing today, Permissible Progeny, um, I I came away a little bit ashamed at how little thought I had put into having kids, which is a really important life decision. Sandra, you don't have kids yet. Have you thought about it at all? Yeah, I've definitely thought about it. Mostly I think about whether I am good parent material. Like, what would it be like for a young kid to grow up around all my flaws surrounding them at all times? It's definitely a scary feeling, and I do worry about negatively influencing my future child. There are philosophers who are suggesting that this may not be the only important question to ask. There are more questions and more considerations to take into account. Maybe we should be asking questions about being a parent that we don't generally ask. I interviewed two philosophers about their work on procreation. I was joined by Samantha Brennan a professor in the Department of Women's Studies and Feminist Research at Western University Canada, Sarah Hannon, professor of political studies at University of Manitoba, spoke with us as well. Together with Richard Vernon, they edited a new collection of essays called Permissible Progeny, The Morality of Procreation and Parenting, just out from Oxford University Press. I should note that because they're from Canada, when they're talking about government policies, they're talking about policies specific to Canada, But the way Canada and the United States treats uh, parenting kinds of laws, I don't think that's going to matter too much for our discussion. The issues are going to generalize if you're listening in the United States. 
first, I asked Sarah Hannon what things individuals like you or I should be thinking about before having kids. There's questions that we could ask ourselves as individuals, but many of us fail to. So the questions that we can ask ourselves as individuals include the sort of basic one is, should I become a parent at all? So a lot of times it's just assumed in the natural progression of life that you'll grow up and get married and have a child. Then of course following from that how you should have a child. So should you procreate or should you adopt? Um, when to have a child, so at what point in your life, with whom? And then of course once you have a child, how to parent? And there's very, you know, almost an endless series of questions about how to do that that one could and perhaps ought to reflect on. After discussing what individuals should take into consideration, Sarah brought up questions about having children that we as a society should consider. And I think some of those questions include, you know, how many new people can we support, perhaps as an individual community, globally, and so forth. But on the other hand, you might want to ask, how many do we need? So people are concerned about both over and underpopulation simultaneously, which is quite interesting. So we should ask ourselves how many people we can have on the planet, how many people we should have. Um, what constitutes good and bad parenting is something we can discuss on a societal level. Um, how can we encourage or support good parenting is things we can ask on a societal level. Should we treat procreative or adoptive parents differently? Something that we should ask on a broader scale. Um, including should we subsidize these practices, so should we make adoption um, cheaper for families? Uh, similar questions can be asked about assisted reproduction with procedures like IVF. Um, and who should pay for children? These are all the kind of questions that seem really relevant um, for us on a societal and an individual level, and yet we don't have very much public discourse about them. Wow, these are all such fascinating questions to think about. Yeah, and to me, one of the most interesting issues this volume raises is the sort of asymmetry of standards that we have in our society between natural birth parents on the one hand and adoptive parents on the other. Samantha Brennan experienced this imbalance for herself. My partner and I became foster parents, and we had to undergo screening to become foster parents. And it was incredibly rigorous, so we had to have sort of counseling, psychological screening. We had to have our home inspected. We had to sign an agreement uh, that nobody would ever smoke in our house. Um, we had to have certain kinds of rules about the way we would, we would treat the children in our care. Um, and we don't have anything like that for if you just want to sort of, you know, procreate the usual way. Uh, there's no standard. So I think we do have a bit of a double standard of a very high bar for who gets to foster and adopt children. And, you know, all I needed to have my biological children was to show up with a car seat at the hospital. That was it for leaving the hospital. I mean, I suppose if I'd failed some, uh, if they had reason to suspect drug or alcohol abuse and I'd failed some blood test, that might, that might have been the other thing that might have got some attention. But um, other than that, you know, no, 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 no parenting classes, no uh, basic screening, nothing. Um, in the case of adoption and fostering, pretty significant uh, screening and pretty significant standards. Like we had to have a rail on our stairs of a certain sort. We had to have that, you know, we had to have our house kind of fixed up in order to bring children into it. But we would never do that if you're having biological children. That's strange to me because so many children in the foster care system are in dire need of being adopted, but the strictest standards are placed on parents who want to adopt them. Yeah, it's, it's odd at first glance that there's such a stringent standard for adoption, but not for having your own biological children, 
On the face of it, you might ask, what's the difference? It's a child in either case. So I asked Samantha what her thoughts were about there being such a massive asymmetry in that regard. Part of it, I think, is the model when we imagine foster parents or adoptive, well, foster parents, we're imagining uh, the parental rights are kind of split between the foster parents and the state. So the mm -hmm. state holds a bunch of the rights still. Uh, so that you don't get the full set of parental rights. So it makes sense that there's only certain things you can do. But what I don't think makes sense is the initial standards for who gets to have a child. Mm -hmm. um, we might want to sort of up the standards for who gets to procreate the usual way and maybe lower the standards for fostering and adoption. I'm not sure, but there's certainly a good argument for um, making those things more even. And an important oddity that Sarah brings up is that even if we as a society generally agree about what standards should exist with respect to having children, Something as arbitrary as luck can get in the way of that, which in turn gets in the way of whether or not you get to be a parent at all. Yeah, I can say that I chose to have kids, but it was only a choice for me because my body was able to have kids in the first place. Also, adoption is technically an option to have kids, but that doesn't mean I'll pass the standards or that I'll even be able to pay the fees. When it comes to having children, not everyone has equal access to the same kinds of choices. Our society is certainly not set up that way. Nature isn't either. Sarah explains. So you might choose to adopt anyway, which would um, is what I was looking at pursuing, but many people don't have the choice, right? So if you have fertility issues, it looks like, to me, that's not a very good measure or a measure at all of whether or not you'll be a good parent. However, it plays a huge role in the actual world in terms of um, how easy it is for you to become a parent. And that sort of looks like a morally arbitrary factor from a philosophical standpoint, but in the real world, it's, it's a very important um, determinant of who can parent and how easy it is to become a parent and so forth. I think my favorite thing that I'm gleaning from all of this is that the standards we set for foster parents and adoptive parents make it clear that we do have clear ideas about how children should be raised and under what conditions. It comes off as very imbalanced because the government is really only able to apply these standards under certain conditions. Yeah, and it's odd that via our governments, we've created all of these rules and regulations about who gets to be a parent. But when it comes to having biological children, like Samantha said, all you need is a car seat. And even if you don't think we as a society have a really, really clear set of standards, we're certainly presupposing some kind of loose set of criterion about what makes someone fit to have a child. But then the next tricky issue is if we've got these loose set of guidelines, actually legislating those standards and regulating those standards gets us into some rough territory. Sarah told me that people who set standards for who can have kids historically haven't exactly been our most celebrated leaders. I think, though, there's also been a bad history um, in this domain with things like eugenics and forced sterilization and the mass removal of children. And I think these kinds of things, people don't want to be seen as um, being on side with some of these practices, understandably. And so I think there's concern that talking about the appropriate number of children there should be and who should have them, you know, could make you uh, in bad company with people who have advocated policies like that. So I think there's a concern to avoid that. I'm not about to pretend that I know who should or shouldn't have kids. It is a very icky topic. I feel like our society is already discussing questions like this, albeit in a way that a lot of people find distasteful. 
think of memes or stuff online where people bash on welfare moms. It's so crude and belittling, but the underlying argument is that maybe there should be a minimum income for families to have kids. That's the same question we're discussing today, regardless of whether that is also our conclusion or not. It, it doesn't necessarily make the question evil in and of itself, just because some evil people have answered that question and done horrible things. So it might be easier to think about these kinds of questions if we separate the question, who ought to have children, and to what extent should a government enforce our collective views about who ought to have children? Compare this to freedom of speech. We have all sorts of views about what is or is not appropriate to say, but we're fairly conservative about what kind of speech the government can limit. After the break, we will discuss the work of philosophers who think we shouldn't have kids or should have less of them. Stay with us after a word about our sponsor. Oxford University Press has generously provided us the book that we are discussing on the show today. To find out more about Oxford University Press, visit them on the web at global.oup.com. Oxford University Press has kindly offered to provide you, the listener, with a 30% discount on permissible progeny, the morality of procreation and parenting. So to get a link for a 30% discount on this book, edited by our guests Sarah Hannon, Samantha Brennan, and also Richard Vernon, visit our show notes page at examiningethics.org. And thanks again to Oxford University Press for sponsoring today's show. So one way to support the show would be to buy books from Oxford University Press. Another great way to support the show would be to rate us on iTunes. Um, even if you don't subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, a rating on iTunes really helps us a lot there. Um, we already have one five-star rating, and we're looking for more. So uh, go ahead and put your five-star rating into iTunes and help us out. Welcome back. So far, we have heard from Sarah Hannon and Samantha Brennan about questions that we don't usually ask ourselves about becoming a parent, but maybe we should. We also talked about the differences in standards between who can become a biological or an adoptive parent. Next, I asked Samantha Brennan what philosophers consider when they make arguments against procreation or for limiting procreation. One of the obvious ones is uh, an environmental consideration. Mm -hmm. So what kind of world are you bringing uh, children into? And are they going to uh, help or hurt? Uh, what kind of, in um, what's the environmental cost? What's the environmental benefit? What What's the world like? Those of us, you know, when you're trying to decide whether to have children, sort of what the world is like matters. And then what your children uh, can contribute and cost the cost other people. Both sides of that matter, I think. So when Samantha said, then what your children can contribute and cost other people, I found that really thought-provoking. Um, because at least for me, I never thought, oh man, like what are my children going to cost the world? But that's definitely something to consider, right? Yeah, so I guess, are there people out there that think that it's wrong to have kids? Like, not just for themselves, but for everybody? Yep. In fact, there's one philosopher in particular who's probably most well-known for defending a view like this. His name's David Benatar, and he was featured in this collection, and he genuinely thinks it's uh, immoral to have a baby. Uh, he, he thinks it's morally wrong to reproduce. Right. 
uh, for all of us, mm-hmm. anytime. That is always wrong, always wrong to bring another person into existence. Before the question was, um, is it permissible? Who's forbidden? But his view is the strong view. We're all forbidden. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's always wrong. You know, and if he's right, uh, then the rest of the book papers in the volume don't make any sense. Um, we don't even get to those questions if he's right. So what are his arguments? I, I, I can't be the only one who thinks that his views are pretty extreme, right? No, I think there are a lot of people who think that, but it, I think it's worth walking through his arguments to see how he arrived at that conclusion. His earlier work is based on what he calls a philanthropic argument. Philanthropic just means something like love of humanity. And the idea behind these arguments is they're all out of concern for the child that you might bring into existence. So people suffer a lot of harms. He cites things like chances of getting cancer, being sexually assaulted, even daily hunger, thirst, and feeling tired all count as harms that a parent causes their child by bringing them into the world. And he thinks that's a reason to consider not bringing a child into the world. That seems really intense to me. As a person who has experienced some bad things, including hunger and thirst, I would still say that life is worth living, even though there are all of these harms. I would agree. But what Benatar is going to say is that we are actually blinded by life and cannot see the true horror that it is. There's a bias towards wanting to be alive once a person is alive, according to Benatar, that clouds our judgment. So since a child cannot give consent to be born in this world before it's born and consent after birth doesn't count for anything because they're blinded by life, he thinks it still stands that it's wrong to have kids. Wow. Wow. So it's sort of an amped up version of people saying, how could I bring a child into this world? It's so messed up. Yeah, it's basically a version of that kind of argument. But Benatar has a new and some would argue stronger reason for why procreation is wrong, which Sarah and Samantha think is a bit more compelling. It's called the misanthropic argument, and you'll see it's quite a bit different from the philanthropic argument. Sarah elaborates on the details of the argument which Benatar lays out in the collection they've edited. But the view stressed here is that the misanthropic reason not to procreate is not the harm that that child uh, will experience, but the harms that they'll inflict on others. And the three sort of categories he focuses on are the harms that humans inflict on other humans, the harms that humans inflict on non-human animals, mm-hmm. and the harms that humans inflict on the environment. Okay. And so the prior work was about reasons not to procreate because it will be bad for child. the potential child, and these are reasons not to procreate because it will be bad for everyone else. Right. Um, and I think that, strangely, those are in some ways harder to to uh, defend against because, again, we you see the evidence that as a species we're not sort of as uh, nice as we'd like to think, whereas in the other case, you could say, oh, no, we have good lives. Here's my child is happy and so forth. Yeah. And this one is like, okay, your child's happy, but what are they doing, are they to, doing to other children? Else? Yeah, yeah. So instead of saying, you know, don't have a child because chances are high that something bad will happen to that child, like they'll die in a war or something, the misanthropic argument is saying that it's actually far more likely that they will cause pain to lots of other people. Yeah, and I think that can take form in a lot of ways. Like, maybe your child becomes the playground bully, or maybe they just don't really care about the environment and they contribute to an environmental disaster, 
Or maybe they become Kylo Ren and build the next Starkiller base. (laughs) Yeah, it seems right that even as a person who tries to do moral things, obviously I still hurt people in my life unintentionally. And I don't have a zero carbon footprint or anything. Essentially, if you are a person born in this world, you definitely cause harm to other people, animals, and the earth. So the question is not, will my child cause harm? It's more, how much harm will they cause? And I I think what's interesting about the misanthropic argument, as compared to the philanthropic argument, is with the philanthropic argument, you're just talking about the risk you might pose to one individual, and it's an individual that you've basically committed your life to making sure their life goes well. But the misanthropic argument, it's not just you've decided to risk harm to a single individual. By having a child, you've decided to risk harm to the rest of the world. Samantha also thinks that this focus on harm makes the misanthropic argument particularly compelling. We could disagree with him about whether or not we all have lives worth living. Most of us think we're going to disagree with him about the amount of self-deception we have involved. He thinks that we're wrong in our judgments to think our lives are good lives and worth living. And that if we only paid enough attention to all the ways we're suffering and miserable, (laughs) uh, we would actually realize that our lives aren't worth living. I think that's easier to disagree with than the arguments about what we do to other people and what we do to the environment. And a lot of people want to resist his conclusion, but the piece, I think, why it's so um, powerful is that you can't just sort of, you know, cover your ears and say, oh, no, of course, we're all good, because he he lays out empirical facts, Mm -hmm. which you have to sort of contend with. And you have to say, okay, no, we do do all these terrible things. And how could procreation ever be permissible, you know, in light of this? People don't say, oh, I'm not going to have a child because I don't want to raise a monster or something like that. And if he's right, we're all monsters. Yeah, yeah. You know, we should just, we should, the human race are monsters and we shouldn't have more monsters. We should just stop this now. Right. Yeah. That's a horrifying worldview. Yes. We're all monsters. Uh, We're all monsters. (laughs) Okay, so we've talked a little bit about how children can't consent to being born. And in Benatar's view, being glad you are alive doesn't count as retroactive consent or consent after the fact. Yeah, and related to that, I've, I've been kind of wondering, can you consent to being a parent? Um, because in order to give consent, you kind of need to be fully informed. And, and in my case, like, before I became a parent, I knew that it would be hard. I knew there would be certain things involved. But when I actually became a parent, I, I had no idea what I was in for. I was definitely not fully informed. But the problem with, with parenthood is you you can't be fully informed until you actually experience being a parent. We were talking about this, and Sarah brought up Mina Krishnamurthy, a philosopher featured in their book, who speaks about having children as a transformative experience. I think this relates in in one way to um, one of the papers as well, where Mina Krishnamurthy speaks about having children as a transformative experience. Mm -hmm. And so that can be looked at as a reason to have or a reason not to have children. But she says, you know, the fact that it's a transformative experience and you don't know in certain respects what it's going to be like, um, that might be a reason, a rational reason to have children is to undergo this transformation to see what it will be like. So everyone tells you, oh, it's going to be a transformation. And some people have argued that because it's such a transformation, you can't really know what it's like to have children. You can't make rational decisions about it. Right. And Mina argues that 
Well, no, you can because you can be seeking that transformative experience itself. So you won't know what it's going to be like on the other side, but you think, hey, I'm going to sort of give this a go. Um, and that's an interesting reason that could speak for or against having children, this fear of not knowing what it's going to be like on the other side. I think Mina's right to point out that in a way we do, we can get glimpses of what it's like. We know like from what it's other, how other, we watch other people around us change when they have children. Mm -hmm. We read fiction, we watch movies. It's not completely, it's not like becoming some sort of animal species or, you know, meeting aliens or, you know, it's not totally out of our kin. It's something we can have some idea of what it's like. Uh, so although it's transformative, uh, it's not uh, a complete change that we can't evaluate, I think. That's really interesting. So... Essentially, because it is such a transformative experience, you could argue it's not possible for people to consent to it. Yeah, so, so say a scientist figures out how to travel to another dimension, but she needs some test subjects to try it out. Her test subjects could give their written consent, but many people in the scientific world would argue that they weren't able to give true consent because it's not possible to know what they were consenting to. We, we don't know what this other dimension will do to humans. I think this is a possible argument, but it's also important to consider Samantha's last point because she points out it's not really like traveling to a new dimension because as a society we have knowledge of what parenting is like. Though it may be a surprise for an individual, we have enough movies and personal experiences and interaction with other people to get a good idea of what it might be like. I'm not sure where I fall on this argument because I was listening to a Dear Sugar podcast where two moms talk about how they hate motherhood. They love their children, but they hate being a mom. And before they had kids, motherhood was all they wanted. They spent years trying to get pregnant. And I wonder if they would say that they weren't able to consent to being a mother. Throughout my conversation with Sarah and Samantha, we kept coming back to one very sensitive topic. I asked Sarah, can we restrict people from having kids? More precisely, is it morally permissible to ever restrict people from having children? This links to the question of what it is to be a good enough parent. Um, so we're not probably, when we're talking about the permissibility of procreation or parenting, we're not looking to see who's the optimal or the best parent. It's just who's going to do a good enough job. But then, of course, you need certain skills or resources to do a sufficiently good job. And some people don't necessarily possess those. So just speaking generally, you might think about resources in terms of financial resources or space or time is another big thing. You have to have the time to devote to children. And then there's certain practical skills that you have to possess age some people think is a factor so perhaps you shouldn't have children when you're too young or perhaps beyond a certain age which now science is allowing um, some people to in particular women to have children much later in life is that sort of the way to go now those are some of the um, questions you might ask yourself but there's a difficulties associated with them as well and so you were sort of asking us to look at both sides i think some of the very understandable concerns people have about you know, specifying who can have children in terms of resources or time, is that many people lack resources for reasons of injustice. So if we say, okay, well, if you don't have X amount, you know, it wouldn't be this crude, but if you don't have X amount of dollars or you don't have, you know, a living space of this size, mm -hmm. then we're going to be excluding people from parenting 
on the basis of things that likely aren't their fault. And especially when it might be society's fault, right? If there's a past of historical injustice, right. and then we say, well, these people ought not to have children, that looks very concerning from a moral perspective. But on the other hand, the question still remains about, well, what about the children that would be born into that situation? And so it's a very tricky question because we want to think about how children are affected in the relationship, but we also want to think about how the adults or would-be parents are affected. And um, of course, you know, there's lots of things we can do to support people with insufficient resources that we ought to do for reasons of justice um, anyways. But if we're not doing that, is it really okay to say, some people should or shouldn't procreate. I think those are just a few of the things that I think are tricky about it. This is tricky because throughout the interview, I've been leaning towards, okay, maybe limiting procreation in some ways might be beneficial, but the line is here for me. I have a hard time believing that poverty means that your parents were bad or you could have never experienced anything beautiful or learned anything unique from your parents or that your life wasn't worth it. And I completely agree with what you're saying. But the fact remains that, you know, if you're born into poverty, you're going to have a harder life. And I, I oh, it's hard to say, but I think we need to think about whether or not it's permissible to knowingly allow children who don't have a choice about where they're born, after all, um, to be born into such difficult circumstances. I, I want to make it clear. I don't think that we should be like forcing sterilization in poor communities. But I do think this is an issue that we have to consider. That's that's what makes this question so hard. I just find it really hard to imagine who could decide at what amount of money are you happy enough that your life is worthwhile. I just worry that the poor always suffer first when the government decides to place hard and fast rules on who can do what. So, Sandra, it sounds like you're making two, I think, important claims about having children if you're in a difficult financial situation. It seems like you think pretty much everyone has a moral right to have children, including people in difficult financial situations, but that also for those people in difficult financial circumstances, it's not morally wrong either for them. Yeah, I think I do think that. What is the difference between having a moral right and having a right? Well, so um, a moral right is a right that you have that's grounded in moral reasons as opposed to a legal right that's just whatever the law is, that whatever the law permits you is a legal right. A moral right is something that Independent of what the law is, it would be morally wrong to prevent someone from exercising that right. So you think that people have a moral right in that sense. It would be wrong to prevent them, regardless of what the law says. And it would be wrong for the law to prohibit them. Oh. And then, uh, but that can be different from it being morally right or wrong. Someone might have a moral right, but it still be morally wrong to exercise. So for example, free speech is a good example. A lot of us think we have a moral right to free speech. We have a right to say whatever we want. But it can be morally wrong to say some things and not other things when we're exercising that right. In this case, though, it seems like you think we have a moral right to have children. And even in the case of poor, it's not morally wrong to exercise that right. Yeah, I think that sounds right. I'm inclined to agree with you, Sandra. I I think uh, it can be somewhat classist for someone who's not in a difficult financial situation to think about the lives of people in poverty and make these sweeping assumptions about what is or is not worthwhile from their perspective. But back to the question about moral rights, I asked Sarah and Samantha if they thought that all people have a moral right to procreate, which would mean 
limiting it in any way would probably be off limits. One consideration that I think deserves attention, whether or not it works to ground um, a moral right, I'm not sure, but the importance of the relationship that you go on to have with your child seems to be something that's very important to many people and very important to their flourishing and to their having a good life. And so I think that this idea that the reason many people procreate is in order to raise a child and in particular to have an intimate and special kind of relationship with that child. Um, that seems like something that's really important to our flourishing or many people's flourishing as human beings. And so um, that's a potential reason to think of procreation as morally um, grounded in this further interest that we have uh, in enjoying the parent-child relationship. Other potential candidates include um, some people think that the moral right to procreate might be grounded in um, uh, the importance of the perpetuation of the human species so that there are certain things about our lives now um, that we couldn't value unless our species was going to continue into the future. And you could think about that in smaller contexts like to perpetuate a particular culture or um, ethnic group and so forth. And we both think that that right uh, is not unlimited. That is, that even if you have that right, uh, we both think that that right is constrained by the rights of the child. Mm -hmm. So once you've had a child, uh, the, there might be reasons that justify having a child, but once you've had the child, you, there are particular facts about that person that are going to constrain what you can do and the kind of parent you can be. Mm -hmm. And so those considerations about the relationship are going to ground, might ground the right to parent, but it's not going to be an open-ended right where you get to right. do whatever you want. Once you've got the person in front of you who's the child, they're going to have their own interests and their own rights that are going to constrain what it is you can do. So Sandra, you're still young. Has working on this episode changed the way you think about having children? I definitely agree we need to put more thought into whether we have kids or not. If I have kids, I want to really consider what harms my child could cause to the lives around them. But I'm still not on board with the government imposing regulations, especially if those regulations are intended to limit who is fit to be a parent. But then we're still in a weird place with adoption being so highly regulated and biological birth not regulated at all. That's the great thing about this book. Um, some of my favorite questions to consider in philosophy and ethics are the kinds of questions that most people would think at first glance, these are silly questions to even be thinking about. But those questions, when you really start thinking about what people have said in response to them, you start realizing it's difficult to say where their arguments go wrong. Those are... Those are the kinds of questions I like thinking about. This book is filled with those kinds of questions. And if we're going to be good moral reasoners, these are precisely the kinds of questions I think we should be grappling with. That's great, Andy. But I actually think I did come away with a definitive answer to a question that I had about humanity. We're all monsters. Uh, we're all monsters. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about the topics we've discussed today, visit our show notes for this episode at examiningethics.org. When you visit, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. You'll be entered into our monthly book giveaway. For updates about the podcast, interesting links, and more, follow us on Twitter, at Examining Ethics. If you like what you've heard, please consider rating us on iTunes. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Examining Ethics with Andy Collison is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics. 
Sandra Burton and Christian Weishart produced the show. Our interns are Leah Williams and Jessica Keister. Our logo was created by Evie Brocious. Our music is by Corey Gray, Broke for Free, Pottington Bear, and John Daly and the 41 Players, and can be found online at freemusicarchive.org or the audio library on YouTube. Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of Oxford University Press, DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support.